Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Sports medicine professionals interact with athletes daily, many of whom have an underlying mental health issue. Commonly, this may be anxiety or depression. We know that many athletes don't feel comfortable disclosing their mental health issues or concerns, or often they may go undiagnosed for long periods of time. These issues can affect athletic performance, and the symptoms of many mental health issues may masquerade themselves as other medical problems leading to a delayed diagnosis and treatment. Today on the podcast, we are going to discuss the recently released position statement from the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, or AMSSM, about mental health in the athlete. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Alex Diamond. Dr. Diamond is the director of the Vanderbilt Youth Sports Health Center and an associate professor in the departments of orthopedics and pediatrics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He is a graduate of Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine completed a residency in pediatrics at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children, and received both his fellowship training in primary care sports medicine and his Master of Public Health at Vanderbilt University. He serves as a team physician for several high schools, Vanderbilt University, and the Nashville Predators. Dr. Diamond is a member of the Executive Committee of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness, and the Chair of the Community Advocacy Subcommittee for the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. He is a member of the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee for the National Federation of State High School Associations, NFHS, and is a consultant for the Tennessee Secondary School Athletic Association. Dr. Diamond has over 50 publications, and his research focuses on injury prevention and health promotion in youth sports. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thanks, Mark. It's uh, really great to be here. And before we get started, I I have listened to a bunch of your shows, and I know that uh, you've had a lot of your mentors on the program, so I, I just want to take this time to thank you for being one of my mentors all these years. Well, thanks, Alex. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that you're listening to the podcast too. And you know, I, I consider you actually a little bit of mentor for me with the stuff you're doing down in Tennessee. And and it's certainly, I'd love to have you on in a future episode and talk more about the Safe Stars program too, because I think that's really something that I think would be uh, great for our listeners to hear about in the future. Absolutely, would would love that. And I, I would also be remiss if I. If I don't say that, I'm convinced that I would have gone hungry at many of our conferences over the years <laughs> if you weren't there to coordinate our groups. So uh, on behalf of my wife and my mom, I thank you. Well, for our, for our listeners to understand what that's about, so I'm kind of the de facto travel agent slash restaurant booker when we go to conferences for for Vanderbilt and oftentimes for Wisconsin too, for my two alma maters from a sports and medical training standpoint. So something I enjoy doing, as my wife says, that I should have been a travel agent if I wasn't a physician. So uh, <laughs> anyhow, well, let's talk about the statement here. The American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, or AMSSM, that published its position statement on mental health issues and psychological factors in athletes in March of 2020. The statement brought together various physicians, an athletic trainer, a clinical psychologist, and sports psychologist to review the literature and come up with a comprehensive document discussing various issues involving mental health and athletes from youth to professional athletes. I think a good place to start is just to talk about your experience, Alex, with the development of this statement, and then we can get into some of the specifics. Basically, how did you all decide where to focus and apply what you had found in your literature search, which was extensive? I mean, this is this mimics to me probably my experience of having gone through uh, doing the concussion statement for the AAP with you had, I think, close to 300 references here. 
Yeah, 306. I think I looked at it last night and I, I thought about that as well. And like you, I, I've been fortunate to to be involved in a few of these statements now. And I will say that AMSSM really does a great job in pulling together these these groups and uh, identifying not only content experts, but uh, who are just really smart, accomplished people, but people who understand the need to everyone pull their own weight and work together and be responsible for, for meeting deadlines, which is just a, a heavy lift to begin with, with everyone's res- other responsibilities. But those things are so critical when it comes to these large consensus statements. And I think the other thing that, that was really important for the success in this statement was the leadership that we had. And we had two of the best in Dr. Cindy Chang and Dr. Margot Putikian as the co-chairs of our group, who I'm sure many, many folks know as, as leaders, not only in AMSM, but really just sports medicine across the world. And from start to finish, this was about a two-year process. The document, I think at the end that we submitted was a little over 25,000 words. And, and as you mentioned, it's over 300 references. The way that story got set up is that the co-chairs, along with the, the board of directors from AMSSM, determine the overarching topics and goals of the paper. And, and then as a writing group, we then sort of sit down and drill from there what topics we really want to focus on, how we're going to divvy up those sections based on interest and expertise. And But in the end, what we sort of came back to, our, our goal is to provide an evidence-based best practice document to help sports medicine providers with the detection, treatment, and prevention of mental health issues in, in competitive athletes. And you'll see the section sort of set up that way as you go through the paper. The other key thing that we sort of came back to as we wrote the document is that, you know, it's easy to focus on all the, the negatives when we're highlighting the issues around a paper. And you know, again, obviously this one, mental health and athletes. But I think it's really important to understand that while athletes may be exposed to additional risk factors that impact, impact their mental health, sports participation overall provides many benefits to, to kids when it comes to their mental health and, and well-being. We know that they have fewer emotional and behavioral problems, less likely to participate in risky activities, they have improved self-esteem, better social skills, and discipline. The prevalence of mental health disorders may be lower in the athletic population compared to the general population of, of young people. And we know that physically active children have improved mental health compared to other kids who live a more sedentary lifestyle. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we I think we all realize the benefit of physical exercise. You know, there's obviously the extremes of that that can be certainly a problem, but but just participating in sport and athletics definitely has significant positives about it. You know, the, the statement starts off with a whole section on personality issues. I, I found this section actually personally really interesting. There was a lot of discussion about how there really isn't truly an athletic personality, but there's various individual personalities that can influence both the individual athlete and how they pursue sport training, potentially their performance, some of the team dynamics. Can you take us a little bit through some of the different personality issues related to the athlete that you guys talked about? Absolutely. I think, again, it's important to understand that our athletes don't just exist in this vacuum of sports and, and they have their own thoughts, their own feelings, they're, they're their own unique people, just like all of us. And so there's this interplay of internal variables like perfectionism and pessimism versus optimism and introversion versus extroversion blended with external variables unique to sports like coaching and the team culture and how the team performs, how the individual performs. Uh, and even someone's underlying background, like socioeconomic status, where they're coming from, how the, all those different factors interact can really result or contribute to issues such as anxiety, adjustment difficulties, uh, even their poor sport performance. It's important for us to understand that certain personality styles may have a higher risk of dysfunctional behaviors and certain athletic environments may trigger or exacerbate certain 
mental health disorders or reveal an underlying one that may have been there before. I agree with your, I like your kind of statement about that, where you can't think about this being existing in a vacuum because, you know, really everybody is an individual, even though we're talking about for a lot of these sports that, that it's a team effort and you got a whole bunch of different personalities coming together. I mean, we see that on, on the, the national stage on a regular basis on professional athletes. And you, you get the, you get the crybaby athlete, you get the, the prima donna athlete, you get the one that's, you know, the, 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 the dedicated team leader, so yeah, it's interesting watching all that play out. And, and I mean, that really obviously affects team at a, a great level. I mean, you and I have both been involved, as I'm sure most of our listeners have, with teams of various sorts. And you can see how a team dynamic with all these different personalities, if you get the good mix of that, I mean, how much more you know interesting it makes the team play, how much more the team gets along, how they deal with adversity, those types of things. I mean, it's really kind of fascinating watching that all come together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's everyone always sort of just throws out the term culture, but when you've been around enough teams and you see the differences, it really strikes you and you understand how critical that is to not only the team's success, but really the individual's happiness and, and how they interact with each other. It, you know, it really is a, is a huge component of things for them. And that's where, you know, certainly a coach can make a humongous difference there or coaching staff can make a humongous difference because when you do try and mix all those personalities, you really do have to account for each of those different personalities to, to keep that team culture. Because if you have a plan in place and you do have these different personalities trying to meld together and one person is kind of being the outlier there, you really have to make some tough decisions. And you, you do see that happen on a consistent basis where, you know, a player may get cut at the professional level, or you may see that happen where you, at the youth level, you, you what you may see is actually families start to team shop, right? Where they, they go from team to team until they find one that seems to, to fit their kid. And that may or may not be a good thing because it may be the kid's uh, personality that may be the problem rather than necessarily <laughs> the teams that they're trying to play with, right? That's right. Well, the second section discusses sexuality and gender issues. It covers discrimination of sexual minorities and the mental health aspects related to being an LGBTQ athlete. Since the, this year, obviously, this position statement has been published. This issue has been lifted front and center with the transgender athlete now as we're seeing legislation being introduced and voted upon around the country. Looking at the transgender athlete, and specifically, this seems to be focused on the transgender woman. Can you touch on this topic a bit? Taking a step back and, again, looking at this from a more global perspective and think of it again as our, our background as general pediatricians first in that positive environments are really important to help all youth thrive. And some LGBTQ youth are more likely than their heterosexual peers to experience negative health and, and life outcomes. And we have to understand that. And so it's critical for parents and guardians and, and coaches to all understand, particularly of LGBTQ youth, to make sure they have resources that they need to ensure that their children are, are protected and supported like all of our children. And it's important to create safe, healthy learning environments for all of them as, as students, as people in our communities. We, we know that mental health is a significant issue for, for this population. Just a recent survey that came out ap after the publication of our, of our paper, but Close to 40% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempting suicide, and a third have been threatened, experienced food insecurity, or, or having housing instability. 72% reported symptoms of anxiety, and 62% with symptoms of significant depression disorders. So my take on this is that we, we have to stop hurting our young people, and, and athletes are, are no different. 
Yeah, we just finished up our sports medicine conference here in St. Louis that we put on and uh, Dr. Katie Rizzoni put together a fantastic talk on the transgender athlete. I will definitely need to have her on uh, future episodes so we can talk about that issue kind of in more detail. Just some of the things that she presented, I mean, were astounding as far as the statistics out there. You know, it's it's a hard part here because it's it's actually it's a you know somewhat new area that we're kind of talking about with as far as competing here, but it's not. I think for our transgender athletes, I, I think what people are missing here, I mean, it's already a big issue for a lot of these transgender athletes to even just come out as being trans to begin with. Or, or let that be out there, especially if it's at the youth level. And then to say that, hey, well, you can't participate in sports where it's already they're being ridiculed. I mean, it's 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 something else for them to. I mean, it's just an additional challenge and an additional struggle for them to now be withheld from sports, as a lot of uh, states are trying to legislate around the country right now. It's it's really unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. It's a poor analogy, but even if we sort of go back to concussions and we saw what happened to two kids when we took away their sport. And so not only now were they having symptoms and increased stress and increased anxiety and increased depression around the injury, now you've taken away the thing that they identify with. You've taken away their outlet for stress and anxiety and just sort of compounds things. And so, like I said, it's a poor analogy, but again, these kids are going through a lot already. Sports may have been their one respite, maybe the one place where they actually had a a supportive network around them of teammates. and, And now you take that away from them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when we're already talking about the just the statement in general of mental health, that that's not adding to any additional benefit to their mental health when we're talking about that for sure. You know, there's a large part of the paper that brought up hazing and bullying. Sometimes those two things can often be thought of as synonymous, but in reality, they're two different forms of interpersonal violence. What's the distinction between hazing and bullying? Yeah, as you mentioned, um, both hazing and, and bullying are, are forms of interpersonal violence where there's a power differential. And they both have immediate and long-term consequences. But where they differ is that bullying is any unwanted aggressive behavior by another. It happens usually in a repeated multiple times, and it's likely to be repeated. And the purpose is to inflict physical, psychological, social, or educational harm or, or distress. And it's to really to keep someone out of the group. Whereas hazing is any humiliating or dangerous activity expected of a student who belongs to a group or is becoming part of the group. And it's not usually repetitive. It's usually a, a single single event and it occurs regardless of, of his or her willingness to participate. So just because they're a willing participant in the event doesn't mean that it's not hazing and doesn't mean that there's negative consequences to it. I found some of these statistics in here very interesting is there was a study that showed 80% of NCAA athletes experienced some form of hazing during college and 42% of the athletes had reported a history of being hazed in high school. And then now uh, there was another study a decade after that, another 74% of student athletes experienced at least one form of hazing while in college. And that's, that's a lot of potential hazing victims when we talk about that at the collegiate level. And then even if we take it down to where we deal with a lot more of the high school level, you know, there's increasing incidents with age, as you would imagine, and 25% of high school athletes reporting their first incident occurring before the age of 13 for hazing, which uh, again, I just, it just astounds me that we're, you know, that level that we're talking about these things already happening. Yeah. The, the numbers are striking. And again, it's another topic where it's probably significantly underreported because again, these are things that most people aren't proud of happening to them. They're fearful of reprise, of talking about it. Again, it's the numbers scarily may even be larger than what we're seeing. 
I think this is an area where we have to be really strict about having zero tolerance and uh, for acceptance of any of these behaviors. And I, I think it even goes back to the the simple things of not glorifying um, what we see on the professional level. It drives me crazy every time I, I see on a, a certain sports highlight show where they're showing people being tied to the goalposts or having their heads shaved or having to uh, dress up in crazy clothes or you know, sing on stage, you know, glorifying this, this hazing behavior. And then the very next show is a 30 minute investigative report on hazing. Yeah. And like, you know, you're how many people watch that boring investigative report uh, besides probably folks like us versus how many multiplication factors times watched that highlight show and, and saw that occurring. Yeah, absolutely. I think just we will have a link to the document in our show notes, but uh, I would encourage uh, all of our listeners to go back and look at this document because there's an excellent table in here talking about hazing awareness and prevention and just what are the key roles for different individuals on the team from a coach standpoint, student athlete standpoint, team captain standpoint. So I think if you are involved as team physicians for schools, I think this is good information to get out there and Again, it comes down to culture too. You know, we've talked about culture a couple times already here, but you know, I, I think it's it's setting the tone from the coach's standpoint, and then the coach needs to also kind of basically kind of put that into the your team captain, and then your our captains, and and then certainly the athletes that are involved here, so they can kind of be the forefront of this because we really just I agree it needs to be a zero tolerance thing and. You know, it comes back all the time, Alex, you know, we'll, we'll hear, you'll get pushback from, from anybody saying, well, Hey, it's just what we've always done that it's part of becoming part of the team. It's no big deal. You know, we get someone up, you know, I, I remember just for training camp for the Rams, you know, they would always at the end of training camp have the players come up and they'd have to sing their alma mater song in front of everybody, which, you know, it doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal, but there, there is other stuff that goes on too. I mean, that's, that's probably relatively harmless, but, but in the big picture of things, that may be something that really puts that person at a significant state of anxiety of mm -hmm. having to do that, of performing like that, you know, it's a different thing, performing your sport that you feel is super comfortable with. Um, and then doing something that is totally out of your comfort level in front of a group of other people. Yeah, definitely. I, when we say zero tolerance, I, I think it's because it, it, it's, it's a topic that has such a slippery slope. Start with something that really seems harmless and it doesn't take long to to escalate from there. And like you said, you don't know what someone's underlying history and, and where they feel comfortable doing and you know, whatever they're being asked to do for the purposes of joining the group that may cause embarrassment. Again, it's just the wrong way to go about it. And the studies have shown that people who go through hazing experiences in the end feel less close and less tied to their to their team versus when that team actually does a true team building experience together, it, it, it actually strengthens that, that unit strengthens that bond, particularly if they do something where they're, they're doing something to help others. So, you know, instead of hazing a, a great option is doing a, a team building exercise. That's a community service. Um, and they've seen, um, just how strong that brings the unit together, because not only they're doing something positive, they're helping somebody else in the end. And, and it gets back to what you said before. That's what really builds your team, your team culture for the right reasons. Yeah, it's that sense of belonging and that everybody's part of it. You know, that's 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 the important part here. There's also discussions in the document about sexual misconduct. This has been an issue, obviously, from the sports medicine world, dealing with Larry Nassar case in USA Gymnastics. 
The statement quotes a study where 3% of coaches admitted to having intimate relations with an athlete under the age of 18. This was discussed as vulnerability with the athlete in in the development phases where they aren't yet elite athletes, but considered pre-elite. So I could see this also, you know, when we're talking about it at just in a general team level for, you know, if we're not talking about elite sports, potentially the kid who's, you know, the best athlete on the team kind of thing, so to speak at the different tier, they're, they're looking at their, that rising athlete. And there were few risks here in the height level of stress and leading to that elite pathway, but the athlete potentially being more vulnerable and more likely to tolerate inappropriate behaviors rather than compromise their pending achievement. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I I think that's a very interesting topic. This is something that has really been thrust into the forefront uh, recently uh, with with events, really sad events. But the AMSSM actually has a a separate and unique uh, position statement that just came out uh, shortly after this document focused on exactly this topic. So I would encourage your listeners to to check that out. Surprisingly, uh, peer athletes are far more likely to perpetuate sexual harassment uh, against each other uh, in the broader sense of uh, when we look at sexual abuse. But if we look at the underage athletes, again, the population that we're most focused on, 98% of abuse came from those in positions of power. You hinted at this concept of this pre-elite athlete. And so we use this term, imminent achievement, which means that they're on the path to making it. They, they tend to specialize at a younger age, which tends to be around this time of puberty. Um, and so it really puts them at, that, at risk. They're, they feel dependent on uh, these coaches and the people they work with. They're so close to making it that if they can just sort of hang in there and, and, and go with the flow, they feel like they're going to make it. So they, they uh, really become a very susceptible group to, to this abuse. Um, Circling back to some of the things we talked about already, we know that um, populations at risk in youth sport reflect the general population. So we know that other vulnerable populations uh, are at a much higher risk. So those who are are disabled athletes, our LGBTQ athletes, uh, that's another group we need to be particularly uh, worried about. But on the flip side, we know that particular sport or the amount of clothing that someone wears or the amount of touching involved in training or, or sport is not correlated to seeing increased uh, abuse. But what is, is unsupervised situations um, and uh, particularly where there's, uh, again, this big power power differential that allows for, for grooming. Again, I think you were leading into this, this a bit. And again, what grooming is, is where the coach is showing that preferential treatment toward an athlete uh, and sometimes even towards the parents in order to gain their, their favor and trust. And there's four key components that go into grooming. One is targeting the victim. Two is building trust and friendship. Three is developing control and loyalty. And, and four is building and securing secrecy. And so as we look at ways to prevent and, and stop abuse, any ways we can sort of recognize these steps occurring early and intervening, intervening early in these stages is really important. We talk about this a lot as far as opportunities for these things to happen. I think that's just where parents need to be cognizant about, you know, when there is one-on-one with an adult coach and a uh, youth athlete, whether it's a training session, whether it's things with teams, that's where the the issue becomes more of a concern. I mean, as someone who's been involved with 
my son for Boy Scouts and being one of the leaders there. I mean, we we have we have to do it too deep where we have we can't have an individual adult with one child um, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. And so I, I think we don't talk about that enough at the sports level. You know, when we talk about individual training sessions or sports where it may be an individual athlete. And I think that that's something that needs to be brought up and raised with coaches on a regular basis of acknowledging that, hey, that's not good. I mean, even if it's just a perception thing, it may be also that there there may be something going on there, right? Yeah. And, and you know, we've sort of always talked about it in, in medicine. You're, you're taught to have, you know, when you're doing specific procedures to have a chaperone, have someone there. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's, it's about the perception. You know, there, there's nothing secretive about this. There's nothing, you know, that needs to just stay between you and I, and there should always be over communication. You, you can't communicate enough in, in these situations. Um, so anything that sort of goes against that is, is something for parents to sort of be suspicious of and, and to, to raise some flag flags about. And I think, you know, having uh, adult advocates with these uh, athletes is, is important. You know, someone who maybe not, may not necessarily be connected to the, the team or their or their individual performance and sort of an independent person who can just you know be there to make sure that that child's welfare is being put at the forefront. We're going to take a quick break and when we return we will continue our discussion with Dr. Alex Diamond. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out the Voice Farm your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing the Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We are back with Dr. Alex Diamond, who is talking to us about the AMSSM position statement on mental health and athletes. A section was dedicated to the transition or retirement from sports. This, I think, it's a vital and often overlooked discussion for athletes. All of us who participate in competitive sports will have eventually a joint to hang up our cleats, whether it's from Father Time telling us our time is up or just an injury or other life change. None of us will likely be competitive athletes for all of our life. Maybe we can have the exception there for Olympic curlers. I always keep saying I have always still a hope to be an Olympic athlete because I could be a curler if I really, really, really puts up my heart to it. Where do you think you need to be? We, we should be taking this discussion, especially with the athletes you and I take care of regularly with, with kids and adolescents of just retirement from sport. 
So I, I will say that there's still hope for us uh, because we can be lifelong exercisers. My former neighbor, he's now 90, 96 and uh, swims with the uh, sort of the senior Olympics now. And he's, a, I think, a silver medalist in the Silver Olympics at 96, still, still swimming. So we can always, always take uh, an athlete. We just have to find new, new ways to do it, maybe. Uh, he also makes me look like I'm the laziest person in the world. So. <laughs> But uh, uh, what I would say is when, even when they, when folks step away from sport, there's still this concept uh, that we call the gladiator barrier for athletes. Mental health has always had this stigma that is tied, tied to weakness because of this, this barrier and, you know, these sort of thoughts that they have in regards to mental health, they end up with a loss of help seeking behaviors mental health in general has a stigma throughout our society. And so it's even more heightened in athletes because they, they're fearing this loss of their role model status and diminished self-esteem. And so as they step away from sport, these are all the things where they're losing their, their identity. There's this false perception just because they have such high physical health that they're immune to, to mental health issues. I think that's the the tough kind of balance there is is you know we just talk about all this physical toughness but the mental toughness and it, and again it, unfortunately it's still a stigma I think for some athletes and and for you know people out there saying hey you know you're you're this tough athlete you should be able to deal with this mentally but you know I had my son on a, a couple episodes ago we were talking about this and you know it really is an issue and I think I think we're getting better at it because I think we're seeing a lot of prominent athletes come out and talk about their experiences and their challenges I, and I think that's making a big difference um, of recognizing and acknowledging it and, and hey you know you've got some of these elite level athletes who are being open about it and that hey they can deal with this too uh, but you can still succeed and just realizing that this is something that's more normal than a lot of people want to acknowledge that it is yeah, totally agree, Mark. I, I think those things occurring have been so beneficial for starting to break down those those walls and, and barriers. And uh, you, you hinted a little bit at it uh, when you're talking about your son is and sort of circling back to when athletes stop playing. You know, they, there's this loss of their athletic identity, and so I think their need for mental mental health services expands at this time. Um, but for our kids and, and adolescents, how do we how do we keep this from happening to them? And so. I think we really focus on two things. One is building resilience uh, and increasing their uh, coping strategies. And then the second is making sure that their identity isn't wholly tied to being an athlete. We want to raise them to be balanced individuals and, uh, of course, love their sport and, and have passion about it, but um, have other passions and, and make sure that uh, there are other things that they enjoy, uh, whether it's community service or church or music, the arts, whatever, whatever it may be, make sure there are other things that they enjoy. And that doesn't mean they have to enjoy being an athlete less, but there needs to be other things too. And the last thing I'll say on this is I think the terminology we use is really important. I never allow anyone when I see them in clinic to say they, they quit, they quit playing baseball or they yeah. quit, you know, swimming. It's, uh, it's either, uh, I'm retiring, uh, or I've chosen to do something else uh, mm -hmm. because quitting has such a negative connotation and we're all allowed to, change what we enjoy and what we want to do. And so you should be able to do that without the burden of, of what that word quitting means. Yeah. And I, I use the phrase is it's okay to stop rather than quit. Because again, it, it, there's not that, that negative connotation of the quitter there. Cause again, that's not really what's happening there. And 
you know, I will usually talk about with my patients too, in the sense of, you know, if there is an injury or say something's coming up or say, you know, the athletes just, you know, mentally, they're just not there yet, but physically they may be okay to go back to it. I said, I'm willing to be the bad guy here. And I'm happy to write you your note that says you're still not clear to go back to participate if you just don't feel ready yet and giving them that permission. So they don't feel that added pressure onto, you know, getting back out there and trying to perform because everybody says, well, your physical injury is healed. Uh, I'm willing to take that take take that bullet for the athlete, so to speak, and just be the bad guy there and just say, "Hey, you're you're they're just not ready to go back." Uh, absolutely, maybe I learned that from you then, but I'll, yeah, I use that. I'll use that too. There's an interesting section here on the psychological response to injury and illness. There is discussion of the increased risk of certain mental health and physical disorders more common in athletes than non-athletes, including performance anxiety, binge drinking, disordered eating, menstrual dysfunction, all things that we talk about that are. Uh, medical concerns that that are not unique to athletes, but have some unique challenges to the athletes, and just the relationship with stress, increasing the risk of injury. There were there were this discussion of the the three athletes' responses to the most important sports injury rehab, including cognitive, emotional, and behavioral. Can we tease those out a little bit for the listeners? I think this is one of those areas in sports medicine that we have finally really come to understand is so prevalent as you start seeing teams and organizations and, and schools start bringing dedicated sport psychologists and other mental health providers as part of their full-time staff and and sometimes they're even around the athletes more than more than we are at, at this point and I think a lot of it is because so much of this is tied to this concept of athletic identity and um, we know that injury or illness can affect performance it can affect mental health and and Vice versa is true. Mental health can affect performance and ability to manage or recover from injury and illness. There, there's one study that, or some, not just one, there's several studies that have showed increased risk of both acute and overuse injuries when there are um, perceptions of negative relationships amongst teammates and, and coaches. Uh, conversely, uh, athletes who have, high, who have high resiliency, what we talked about before, high coping strategies, high self-efficacy, are generally optimistic and, and have supportive social networks, they respond much more effectively to stress and we see uh, lower injury rates in, in these groups. So those are concepts that we need to, to help our young athletes develop early. And we definitely need more psychologists out there. I mean, that's no question. I mean, that's just just in general. I mean, it, right now it's a crisis. I don't know what it's like for you guys down in Nashville right now, but um, I was talking about this with people the other day about just here in St. Louis. I mean, our our uh, inpatient wards right now are not really kind of just injuries or things like that, or um, just kind of the general kind of medical issues that we tend to see. It's it's a lot of mental health issues that we're seeing right now of our athletes and well, not necessarily athletes, but just our our adolescents in general who are taking up most of our inpatient wards right now, and we just don't see enough of that uh, outpatient mental health care that we could probably need and use. Yeah, absolutely. I, I- we're seeing the seeing the same thing, same trends, and I think you know all of us in the pediatric sports medicine world. As we talk, I think we're seeing a lot of the the, the same concerns and issues and problems that our our teens are going through. It's it's hard. Life is hard, and it's really hard to to be in that age group. Uh, and there's a lot of stressors in in our lives and our worlds right now, and and they're no different. Uh, and perhaps sometimes even at a at a greater disadvantage. And Again, just the resources available to them are, are so limited. So if, uh, yeah, I would really encourage any of your listeners, if they're on the fence and thinking about a career, um, that is one that is so, so needed. 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I mentioned this on my last podcast is that my, my middle son is interested in either psychology or psychiatry and, and, and at the, that level, our, our level we deal with, with kids and adolescents. And boy, I told him, I said, he'll, he'll have a very busy practice right off the bat if that's what he decides to go into, because it's just, there, there's just not enough of them out there. The waiting lists are really long as far as getting kids in, which is unfortunately an issue. So that's, you know, if anybody out there, I agree, if you're interested in a career, you're, you're someone who likes to care for other people, you like to help other people. Uh, boy, that's a, that's a profession that definitely is uh, sorely needed out there. Yeah. And it doesn't, what I always tell people is that, you don't. it doesn't have to wait till you're at a crisis situation. Now, this is something yep. that, uh, and you know, one of our, one of our mentors for both you and I, Mark, uh, who works with here at Vanderbilt, doc, Dr. Gene Hanna, he said the other day that you know I think we should all be assigned a counselor when we're born, um, because we're we all we all have stuff and uh, we all need help and and sometimes just teasing through those things can um, just really give us a really strong foundation for for moving forward uh, in whatever it is that we choose to do. Yeah, and that, you know that doesn't even have to be as complex as an actual counselor. Too, I agree with that sentiment. I think that probably is beneficial for all of us if to process that with someone who's maybe independent of us. But you know, even just having a good close knit group of friends that you feel comfortable being open with, and just trying to deal with everything yourself is is not easy to do. So I think, yeah, having some type of support in their uh, support network, yeah, is 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 great. Is great, no question. So self-medication to deal with illness is discussed in this document as well. Alcohol being the most widely used coping to self-medicate and marijuana now passing tobacco is the number two reason. Can you discuss some of the issues related to the self-medication strategy? We've mentioned a little bit about um, coping and resilience, and, and this is just clearly a very unhealthy coping mechanism. Those who self-medicated had increased self-reported symptoms of depression and general psychiatric symptoms. So it's it's not about the substance. Oftentimes, it's not even necessarily about their sport. Uh, it's about stuff that's going on in their lives as, as people. And sometimes, as we talked about before, sport may be a trigger or something that reveals it. But uh, these are not unique issues issues to, to athletes and very similar to the general population. I think one area that I'll comment just on directly would be on, on opioid uh, use, as it definitely remains one of the, the more concerning rising issues in, again, all of medicine today, not just sports medicine. And our young youth and high school and college athletes are, are not immune to this to this issue. Male adolescents uh, who participate in organized sports are more likely to be prescribed, use, and misuse opioids compared to non-sport peers. Um, certain high-contact sports like wrestling, football, and ice hockey tend to have an increased uh, risk for non-medical use of prescription opioids. Likely, injury is a key driver for this. And so, again, as providers, we really want to think of ways to properly control pain with uh, non-medicinal purposes, physical therapy, uh, alternative and complementary therapies, behavioral therapies. All those things are, are really important for addressing an underlying uh, pain. Uh, again, certain acute injuries uh, you know, obviously uh, require certain uh, medications, but uh, again, lots of studies out there, uh, even of fractures uh, in kids that show that ibuprofen and Tylenol just as effective as as narcotics. And so when there's a proper cast or, or splint or brace, so really no need for, for us to be prescribing these medicines. And the more we can get them off the streets, the, the better. There's a large section in this document on eating disorder, disordered eating. We're, we're going to leave that to a future discussion as that uh, that's a whole episode in and of itself. They're just discussing and teasing all that out and all the nuances of that in an athlete. 
the topic of depression and suicide was covered. Um, as a former track and cross country under runner, I found it really interesting that track and field athletes report a statistically significantly higher rate of depression than in team-based sports. The reasoning here was also interesting in, as well in that an individual-based sport where there's only one winner compared to a team-based sport where half of the athletes participating will be considered the winners. Yet track can, and it is team-based to some extent. Obviously, there's relays, there's a team you know, event, kind of there's the points that go to the whole team. I'm curious if there's maybe truly more to that than just the individual versus team-based sport. Any thoughts on that yourself? Yeah, I would agree with you. And I'd, I'd probably differ from the author's own own conclusions. And I, I think it's much less about how many people are winning and, and speaks more to um, having that social supportive team network that we've that we've talked about. I, I think that's so critical. Like you said, it's having teammates, having uh, peers um, that you're going through things with and who can be there to, to support you, uh, I think makes such a big difference. And so uh, I'd be curious to even think, uh, to see, you know, how the relay teams compare to, again, the, the individual cross country, individual cross country runner in that regard. Be interesting to tease that out further and look at some other research on that in the future, for sure. You know, there's a couple other sections, including dealing with anxiety, sleep disorders, ADHD, but I wanted to touch on one of the last sections on overtraining syndrome, because this is kind of this nebulous thing that, you know, it's, is, do you have it or do you not? And, you know, as someone who deals with lots of endurance athletes, this is always a struggle to figure out for sure. Um, in reading this statement, I guess my eyes were open to the term underperformance syndrome as an alternative or something felt to be more accurately descriptive. I, I, I honestly have not heard that term before. Can you touch on this a bit? Yeah, I think it gets to the to the underlying aspect of of this is that it's not just all about overtraining. Um, the overtraining is a part of it, but uh, there's so many underlying parts of that overtraining. Things like poor nutrition, illness, and for our topic, a lot of underlying psychosocial stressors. And that's what when I have uh, individuals with with this condition. For me, that is usually what jumps out as you really get past whatever their aches and pains are that they're actually coming to complain of when you actually get down and, and really start having good conversations with them. You hear about the stressors that they're having uh, at school or with their parents or with friends or, or things going on um, with coaches um, or at school. Um, they tend to be you know, your type A perfectionistic uh, type, type personalities. Uh, their sleep is affected. I think where we start seeing is that this all results in underperformance. That's what the athlete sees. That's what they come to you about. It's the underperformance. Uh, but what's getting them there for me, what I see most of the time is a lot of underlying unresolved mental health issues that as you address that, the other aches and pains, the performance, they all start to improve. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot more logical sense to me of talking about it that way, because then I mean, it's not necessarily the negative connotation of overtraining. And I agree that there's, you know, if you look at some of these athletes who we put in the diagnosis of overtraining syndrome or who are in this kind of spectrum of things, it's not always that they are training too much. And some of them, when you say that they're overtraining and they look at you kind of crazy because they're like, no, I'm actually doing less than what I normally do. Um, and I'm still having these issues. So, so I think that that is probably a, a better and more appropriate term and kind of hits the nail on the head a lot better and probably would be more relative to the athlete rather than using the overtraining part of that. And, and I think you lose them too. You, you know, they're, as soon as you say you're training too much, you're working out too much, all they hear is you taking away sport from mm -hmm. them. 
again. And so you lose them for all the other stuff that is really the problems that you need, need to fix. So. So as we reach the end of our episode today and our discussion, we have a feature that's called the Pearl of the Podcast, considered our take-home point for the episode. Uh, if you had a Pearl of the Podcast, Alex, what would it be? I would say be an advocate. You know, most of us on this podcast aren't mental health experts or mental health providers, but we do oversee and coordinate care for young athletes. And, and above all, they, they trust us, they rely on us. So normalize health-seeking behaviors, make sure they know that you care, just be a human. And make sure they know that they're that you're there for them. Be a non-judgmental listener and help them navigate the process. In the end, be an advocate. Yeah, and I think yeah, obviously for us that always starts with being good listeners, right? So uh, if we're not listening to our athletes and what they're kind of talking about, then all that stuff we're going to have our preconceived kind of way of dealing with it. So yeah, I agree with you 100%. Being advocate is awesome. So I'd really like to thank Dr. Alex Diamond for walking us through the AMSSM position statement on mental health and the athlete that was published last March in 2020. We will have a link, as I mentioned, to that document in our show notes, so be sure to dive in and check it out. It's it's chock full of great information, some great resources, some great references in all of these different areas. Uh, we are so thankful for you listening today. Please leave us feedback, and we look forward to your five-star reviews. You can check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.